Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Thursday, y'all. I'm becoming a person from the South like Ryan. I was like, what? Where did that y'all come from? That was so I don't weird. Know. I find it's fun to say y'all, but then it's also weird because I'm Canadian. Yeah, it's weird, and you're mocking Southern people. We don't deserve that. I'm not. I love it. I nope. would love to say that. You don't even say it right. How hard is it to say y'all? It's not authentic to you. You need to be saying okay. a boot, a boot. <laughs> you can probably catch me saying that here and there, or a if you really go deep into our archives. Anyway, it's a beautiful day to be alive. Forty-three days until Christmas, which and exciting. We, what? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, We've got a big show coming up. Actually, speaking of the holidays, Dr. James Simmons is with us to talk about how safe it is to fly now that some of these airlines have kind of figured it out. But is it as safe as they say? Mm. I mean, I'm a little nervous. I'm trying to convince my mom to come out here for Christmas. But depending on that conversation, I doubt it. Yeah. Oh, too bad. Well, I'll be your family over Christmas, even though you probably don't want that. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I'm super excited for this. We uh, promoted it on yesterday's show. We have Allie Young from Protect the Sacred joining us. She basically led a lot of the community in the Navajo Nation to vote for Biden, and they turned to Arizona, uh, Arizona blue. Yeah, it's a huge thing. I mean, uh, reports were saying that they traveled like, what, over two hours on horseback just to get to yep. the nearest polling center. It's it's pretty incredible, and I can't wait to just uh, talk with her. Yeah, she's joining us in a bit on the show, so hang out with us for that. But let's get into our What's Trending This Hour. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany went on Fox & Friends this morning. You know, for the past few weeks, McEnany has been appearing on Fox News as a private citizen and Trump campaign advisor, not as the White House press secretary, two jobs she has been holding simultaneously despite ethics complaints. And here's a clip from this morning. Uh, I haven't spoken to the president about that. Um, That would be a question uh, more for the White House. But I will say that all laws are being followed um, with regard to an expected um, transition, though we expect to continue on um, as the Trump administration. We will see um, how our litigation goes. You know, the irony of someone who is press secretary telling Fox News to talk to the White House when she is that person is just... Yeah, I I have no comments. (laughs) You know, there's clips of her in the past during the transition period. I believe before, like when Trump actually won in 2016, there's these clips of her on CNN where she's literally 
you know, bashing the Republicans for saying that there were some scams happening and all these things. It just feels like a weird full circle moment that she's now on the wrong side of history. And she was willing to kind of sell her soul to the devil. It's sad. Yeah. And, and people are questioning the Hatch Act here because that prohibits government employees from engaging in campaign activity in their official rules. And as we've seen, that has happened across the board and the administration or some of those members are not listening to that or following those rules. Well, if they all want to go to jail, cool, lock them up. Hey, there you go. They'll have uh, fun all together. Now, a Deutsche Bank survey found more than half of workers wanted to continue working from home for the two to three days a week after the, the pandemic. I mean, I, I'd be down for that, actually. Oh, really? A few, a few days a week. I mean, I think a few days in the studio, a few days from home. Sounds good. A little balance. Okay. But check this out. I want to know if you'd be okay with this, Ryan. According to the Deutsche Bank research report, a 5% tax rate on those days on the average salary of a remote worker could raise $48 billion a year in the U.S. So they're saying that they should do a, an extra tax for all of us who are working from home. Oh, so like take more money out of my check? Right. Oh, um, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I don't know if that's how my ch- unless I get an increase in a raise or something that can balance it out. Who knows? We can yeah. have some conversations. Well, that's making some assumptions because it, in a way it would be good because it would cover the costs of grants for people who can't work from home and are on, on lower incomes. But that's not considering those who actually are working from home and still on lower incomes. <laughs> So now the ballots in a video reposted by Trump are valid and were legally cast on November 3rd or earlier, according to L.A. County officials. Now, here's a video where you hear the person recording questioning what's happening. This has been circulating around social media. I thought they collected them all. I just want to document. Oh, we're so collected. Wait, but how come they already called the state? Because these are uh, mail-in ballots. (laughs) Are there a ton in there? Yeah. All right. Are you collecting from a lot of places? And it's now been confirmed that the two men in the video are authorized election officials who are collecting the ballots on November 4th so they could be counted. And that's according to NBC, AP, Reuters. The mail uh, drop boxes were locked at 8 p.m. on election day, November 3rd, and then collected the following day on November 4th as scheduled, according to L.A. County officials. So while this person thought, oh, she was revealing something, it was nothing. And uh, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? So some more Fun news in the T report. Uh, Pepsi just announced the Grammy winner singer The Weeknd will be performing at the upcoming Super Bowl halftime show. Considering there will be a halftime show or a Super Bowl, who knows? He also announced his Super Bowl debut in a tweet today, which read, Performing on the iconic stage, see you February 7th, 2021. The Pepsi Super Bowl halftime show kicks off at Raymond James St- uh, Stadium in Tampa, Florida, which don't forget, that was like one of the most high spiking cases of coronavirus out in Florida on February 7th. And it's, of course, it's going to air on CBS. So I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to the weekend slang. And I really do enjoy his music. Yeah, he, he's, uh, but he's not necessarily that like crazy out there performer on stage. That's so that, the thing. That's the thing. And yeah. people were bringing up last year, how, um, or earlier this year, how J-Lo had to split her time when she's be- basically kind of a better you know, performer than he is are more lavish and kind of big um, with what you would expect a Super Bowl performance to be. But we'll see. That's your T-Report. More coming up next hour. Now coming up, Trump is replacing Pentagon officials with loyalists. Should we be worried? Alex Ward, national security writer for Vox, joins us for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. 
There are three men replacing top civilian officials at the Pentagon this week that are, quote, shady and inherently untrustworthy. And that's according to Vox staff writer Alex Ward, who covers national security. He wrote a piece about this and joins us right now to discuss who's in, who's out of Trump's Pentagon and the impacts of these changes. Thanks again for joining us. Happy to be back. So have we seen this many firings or resignations and replacements as an election for second term or presidency has ended before? Uh, not in recent times. This is quite unprecedented. Uh, usually the sec- you know, the lame duck period precedes all the way to the inauguration kind of unchanged in order to help with the continuity of you know, government and the peaceful transfer of power. In this case, we have quite the turnover right after the election. So... How did this election kind of empower Trump to make the decisions that he's making, especially when it comes to these firings? Well, one could imagine that there would be an electoral cost on Trump if he's if he's seen, you know, messing with his Pentagon, a.k.a. the U.S. military, if he's acting in a way that people are thinking, oh, he's trying to consolidate power. And uh, there were people telling him he had he had long wanted to fire Mark Esper, the former secretary of defense, really since the summer. Uh, but people have been telling him, no, don't do it before the election. It will look petty. You'll also look like a strong man. And so he waited until after the election. And it was clear, win or lose, Esper was gone. And in this case, he lost still, and he still got rid of Esper and a bunch of other people, it seems. Yeah, let's talk about some of those recent resignations of note and who's replacing some of those individuals that you even noted have brought up a lot of red flags. Yeah, so one of them would be a guy named James Anderson, who was the acting director of policy planning. That's a really big job at the Pentagon. Uh, effectively the third most important civilian, really in charge of helping the building understand major defense issues, how to deal with them. And someone Trump had always wanted that job is a guy named Anthony Tata, who a former brigadier general who holds quite um, Islamophobic and and racist views. And he had been uh, uh, put forward to be Senate confirmed for the position. But a lot of those views came out, including him calling former President Barack Obama a terrorist. And so He was immediately withdrawn after a Republican and Democratic backlash, but remained in the building. And then now with Anderson pushed out, Tata was able to take over that role. You know, a lot of critics, like you wrote in your piece, said that they were kind of fearing what the president's plan for the military was. I guess what could actually happen that concerns them? Some people were quite worried that maybe this was Trump uh, sowing the seeds for an Insurrection Act, you know, provision. In effect, the president would say, oh, I now can send U.S. active duty troops around the country to quell protests, to control whatever he'd like to control. Some people were worried that maybe a coup was afoot or some sort of cover-up was, was on its way. Um, look, is, are the chances 0%? No, in this administration, but they're darn near close. Um, what I've been learning from my conversations with folks is that there may be not the most worrying reasons, but definitely some major issues could be changing um, because of these personnel switches, such as, for example, um, the Pentagon had been pushing for quite some time against Trump, who's been wanting to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan by Mm -hmm. Christmas. And a lot of these people at the Pentagon uh, are in line with that view. So that's one possibility of what these changes mean. Yeah. Alex Ward again joins us, staff writer for national security for Vox. So, I mean, I'm so intrigued by the word loyalist um, because I feel like don't most presidents want people who are loyal to them? Like what makes this instance different? Great question. I mean, I think there's a difference between duty and loyalty. In previous administrations, you would see, well, I have a duty to the president to serve the president as ably as I can and do what's right within the bounds of my legal limits and my constitutional authorities. When you say loyalist, what you're really saying is someone who will do what Trump wants, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the legal authorities and the constitutional responsibilities. 
And so these are people who have been defying logic and reason and, and laws in, in regular order to serve Trump's interests. For example, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, who will now be leading Pentagon intelligence, was someone who worked tirelessly to prove that the Obama administration was spying on the Trump campaign, despite all evidence showing that is not the case, but that it was someone, Ezra was someone who very clearly wanted to be in the president's good graces and believed in this sort of deep state conspiracy. And so that is someone who I think many people would describe as a loyalist versus someone doing their governmental duties. Could Biden just fire and replace them? And we kind of need to wrap up. Yes, they are political appointees. And so the one worry was these folks are trying to burrow in, in other words, trying to stay in jobs that Biden couldn't fire them from. That remains a possibility based on an executive order passed by Trump a bit ago, but it doesn't look like it's actually in operation yet. So come January 20th, Biden could fire these folks as any other administration would uh, coming in. Yeah, because I do wonder, like, strategically, Trump can't really do anything that bad, especially if reports of him planning on running again in 2024, it feels like he can't risk anything major happening that could reflect negatively on him, right? Well, you'd say that, but of course, also, he didn't really solve a coronavirus uh, epidemic, which would have been smart electorally. But I'll put it this way. It is unlike Trump to go away from his base instincts. And in this case, Trump's base instinct, whether you agree with it or not, is the U.S. should be out of foreign wars, whether it be Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, wherever it may be. And it looks like he... One, again, major theory of all these changes is that he's putting a team in place that will not resist those withdrawals, but in fact will accelerate. Okay, Alex Ward, thank you so much again for joining us. Always a pleasure to be here. Alex is a staff writer for national security for Vox. Now coming up, the candidates that could fill Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's role as Senator of California. The Washington Post joins us to discuss who Governor Gavin Newsom is considering next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As Senator Kamala Harris is moving into her role as vice president-elect, and it leaves a gap in California to fill. Two Latino politicians are being looked at as contenders, California Attorney General Xavier Becerra and Secretary of State Alex Padilla. And joining us right now to get into this, senior national correspondent from The Washington Post, Scott Wilson. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So what is Newsom looking for from a candidate? And I mean, they probably expected this, right? They were planning this. Well, it's a good point. I mean, I do think that, that the speculation about who would follow Senator Harris began almost as, you know, in, in August when Harris was chosen as Biden's running mate. So they've certainly given it a lot of thought over the last you know, few months. Um, but in California, as you well know, it's complicated politics and, and process is sometimes as important as the actual decision. So it's going to be a week's, perhaps even months long process. Newsom's going to be interviewing candidates from across different interest groups, ethnic groups, gay and lesbian community, to see what kind of profile he wants for the job. And he's already receiving quite a bit of pressure to choose a Latino uh, to follow Harris. It would be the first time California sent a Latino in its 170 years to uh, represent the state in the U.S. Senate. They comprise uh, 40% of the population. So many Latino groups are stepping forward as more aggressively, I think, than others at this point saying, please choose one of us. 
Well, you know, this choice that Gavin Newsom has to make feels so important since whoever he chooses would have to defend the seat in two years. Now, is that enough time to get voters invested in this newly appointed person? It's a really good question. And I think it's a it's a key one in this particular choice. There are a host of really good candidates for the job. Uh, serving Congress members, uh, locally elected officials, activists, uh, just a huge list. So one of the really narrowing uh, factors will be exactly what you raised, Ryan, which is, can you win a statewide contest? 40 million people live in, in California. Obviously, it's, it's huge, it's complicated, it's expensive, Very uh, a bunch of different media markets. So picking someone who is not well-known is a bad idea. The Democrats most likely won't lose the seat, given their huge advantage in uh, voter registration. At the same time, no governor wants his pick for a job to be sort of pushed out of office within two years. Uh, It's part of a So that will be a big uh, part of it is who can win statewide in just two years. Mm. Again, we're talking to senior national correspondent Scott Wilson from The Washington Post. Now, what are the backgrounds of these candidates, though? How close are these ones to being picked that you actually mentioned in your article? I think there's probably a circle right now of five candidates who are really seen as the first and second tier choices. Again, very early in a process that could change with what the current occupant of the White House does that could change with the way Biden's cabinet begins to come together. But Xavier Becerra is the attorney general of the state, won his statewide race two years ago handily. And Alex Padilla is the secretary of state and won his race, uh, statewide race two years ago with more votes than either Becerra or Newsom got. He's considered more uh, of a mainstream Democrat. Uh, Becerra's considered a bit more progressive, but they they really check a lot of boxes for Newsom. So I'd say that they're the two leading candidates at the moment, mm. but, but a lot could change. You know, you talked about legacy, right? This is Newsom's legacy. Could this choice impact his future political career? Because I would assume he would want to run for a higher office one day. Yeah, I, I, it's a good question again. And, you know, I think he's looking to the White House at some point, yeah. right? So. Mm-hmm. You know, if you pick someone that, that that really disappoints a lot of important Democratic constituencies, absolutely it could affect his career. It, it, it would raise questions about where his true interests lie and and really his decision making ability. You know, these are these are fun sort of for everyone to get involved in, too. Everyone's got their pick. No one really cares what everyone says about any individual. You, we all have our favorites, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes right down to it, you know, who's going to say, wow, great choice. And is that going to be, is there going to be consensus? You know, a lot of politics, a lot of diplomacy involved in a choice like this. How do you tell one group or, or one, you know, set of interests, hey, I'm not going your way, even though you're vital to my, you know, you were vital to my election and, and possible re-election in 2020, but we're, I'm going a different way. How do you make that work for them? He's going to be tested on that. Mm-hmm. And in your article, you mentioned the nonprofit Latino Community Foundation. How involved are they or others in lobbying for this right now? I think pretty interested, uh, pretty active. Um, the Latino Victory Fund, which is based in Washington, D.C., actually began lobbying specifically for Alex Padilla before Election Day, which is a bit peculiar. But, you know, it, it shows sort of the real interest in, in the Latino community trying to get out front on this right now. Uh, the Community Foundation is, inter- uh, is not lobbying for one particular Latino candidate not Padilla or Becerra or Robert Garcia in Long Beach, 
um, uh, some others that are that have been named, but just in general, uh, think of our community and the importance that we played in your election. All right. Well, thank you again for being with us today. We appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you. That was Senior National Correspondent Scott Wilson with The Washington Post. Now, coming up, even if he's out of the president, could Trump plan for a 2024 Ron? I'm not kidding here. We've got that story next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. President Trump has endorsed the chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, to stay in her post, causing many to think he's looking towards a 2024 run. First of all, the nightmare might continue. Ronna McDaniel sounds like Ronald McDonald. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it I does. see that. It really does. Well, listen, he tweeted that yesterday, and so it did cause a lot of people to think, yeah, is it possible that he's trying to get some more allies? Uh, He also included in this tweet, with 72 million votes, we received more votes than any sitting president in U.S. history, and we will win. Like, he continues to say this. A source told Reuters that Trump had informed his allies he might announce plans to run for president again in 2024 by the end of the year. And by the way, if you're wondering, the Constitution imposes a two-term presidential limit, but does not say they have to be consecutive. <laughs> well, here's the thing. This isn't yeah. really shocking. Um, I, we we kind of touched on this. I kind of brought this up a couple of days ago about this idea of there's a possibility and something that I saw on CNN. Uh, there's a possibility that somebody in 2024 from the Trump camp could end up running, whether it's Trump or his kids. And honestly, that is the reason why he is so intensely talking about voter fraud and voter suppression and all these things, because he's trying to keep that base riled up. So they're still feeling as motivated and encouraged and empowered to come back out in 2024 if he does decide to run again. He's like treating it like a TV show that got canceled, but he's betting on the renewal, right? Or the like for it to come back, that come back where like people missed it and then we're gonna be able to ring all those votes again right for me or my possibly daughter Ivanka right Politico though did say well one they said that he wants to continue playing a central role in politics and the GOP doesn't mean he wants to run again but then others like the Washington Post say the process prospect is politically significant but it's also complete fiction yeah I don't know I don't think anything is complete fiction I think that's one thing that this year and his election to be quite honest has taught us that nothing is off the table and that we should consider everything and so if there's a possibility that he could run again you know we don't know how these next four years are going to go with uh, Joe Biden and we're hoping that the country supports him and we're hoping that he continues to you know, work across the aisle and makes everyone kind of happy. But we genuinely have no clue. If the coronavirus doesn't get better, people are going to say, well, he failed at that too. So why not have Donald Trump? So I think there's this opportunity in this um, this moment that Donald Trump could come in and swoop presidency again if people are empowered and pissed enough. Yeah, and, and he continues that campaign during Biden's presidency. And so a lot of people are wondering, why would he tease this so much, right? And that's because, as we know, he likes attention. He wants to keep the, the Trump train going, even while he's not president. Yeah. And because of his legal problems that he might face after, right? If he has all the GOP in his back pocket, right, he'll be able to continue having that support as the other side continues to try to bring him to court. 
including well, New York. It's so interesting because Reuters is uh, reported earlier about how Trump's emails about trying to get people and voters riled up to donate to him is possibly just about the money. It's just about obviously going to his legal defense and then also going to possibly future election camp, like the future campaign in the nearby. And it's quite interesting if you think about it, because that could be the only reason why he's doing this is money is to try to get money. But the donations as of now are under $8,000. So to be quite honest, that could give us hope that people aren't falling for it. But who knows? Well, $8,000. I mean, yeah, that's that's not a lot. Now coming up, how Trump's daughter celebrated his big win in Alaska. That is next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show with COVID-19 on the rise, unfortunately. What happens when hospitals can't take patients? Dr. James Simmons joins us for that. Plus, Arizona is celebrating their blue shift or, you know, uh, blue, turning blue. What is it called? Blue wave. Swing. Blue wave. Yeah. Swinging. Swinging the other way. Oh, and we're <laughs> and- <laughs> swinging now. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and we're going to be talking about why the Navajo Nation was a big part of that. We have one of the leading activists around that joining us in just a bit. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but let's get into some what's trending this hour. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi spoke out about Republicans continuing to focus on the election fraud that they can't show evidence of versus the pandemic that continues to impact Americans and is at a critical turning point. So he's going to be just fine in the transition. He's going to be just fine in the transition. It's most unfortunate uh, that the Republicans have decided that they will not respect the will of the people. And let me just say, It's like the house is burning down and they just refuse to throw water on it. But we are on a path now. This the vaccines, which were coming out of the private sector, actually, the uh, uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine coming out of the private sector show great promise. She said it. You know, that was uh, definitely a mic drop right there. Now, a top U.S. cybersecurity official, Christopher Krebs, who worked on protecting the election from hackers, has told associates he expects to be fired by the Trump administration over a website debunking misinformation about the election. Why would they want that right now, right? They wouldn't want to <laughs> show that, you know, someone to go through the disinformation that they might be creating. You know, since the election, President Trump has already fired, as we know, Defense Secretary Mark Esper and has installed loyalists in top positions at the Pentagon. Oh, God, this is so much. It's a lot. Now, Pope Francis congratulated President-elect Joe Biden in a phone call today. The Biden transition team has announced that, and the former vice president is only the second Catholic to be elected to the White House after President John F. Kennedy. Okay, and that was so much trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, so let's dive into the T-Report, those pop culture moments that are trending. You know, this one intersects with politics, of course, because, uh, you know, obviously we talked about it here. The Associated Press finally called the state of Alaska for Donald Trump, netting him a whopping three electoral college votes, prompting the first daughter to share the news on Twitter. Now, Ivanka praised the moment by saying, put AK in the books for Donald Trump. Congratulations, Senator uh, Dan Sullivan. AK, thank you, Alaska. Now, her 
doing this was so one I, iconic and ironic um of course because the internet dragged mm -hmm. her right users like andy cohen Alyssa milano were quick to point out that ap had already called the election election days ago which her dad and his supporters continue to refuse uh to accept <laughs> so it's kind of like oh so now um you're willing to accept that the media can call certain states or call the election like which one is it yeah it's called a hypocrisy, Ryan. Yes, for sure. Now, speaking of Trump, we're going to move on to actor John Voight. You know, Angelina Jolie's father, honey, because he's over here acting a fool. Mm -hmm. He likened President-elect Joe Biden to Satan, um, saying America is in the greatest fight since the Civil War as President Trump continues to contest the election results. Here is this unfortunate moment. My fellow Americans, I stand here with all that feel as I do, disgusted with this lie that Biden has been chosen, as if we all don't know the truth. And when one tries to deceive, we know that one can't get away with it. There will be a price to pay. The ones who are jumping for joy now are jumping toward the horror they will be in for, because I know that the promises being made from the left to the American people will never come to be. My friends, of all colors, races, and religions. This is now our greatest fight since the Civil War. Now, the video he tweeted out was a minute and 47 seconds, which features himself against a backdrop as he speaks to the camera on Tuesday with the caption, we all know the truth. He concludes with a quote from uh, Muhammad Ali saying, it's not over to the last punch you have. God bless. I really want to know what Angelina Jolie has to say about this. Like, her daddy has completely lost his mind. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And don't bring Muhammad Ali into this, okay? <laughs> he deserves to be at peace. He doesn't want to be connected to Trump. You oh know, I mean, like, it feels like it's opposite day or he doesn't have his glasses on to see that he's actually talking about Trump, right? I don't know. He needs to go lay down somewhere because I know his back and his knees are aching. And that is your tea report. We got more coming up next hour. Uh, yeah, no, well, next up on the show, how the Navajo Nation helped make Arizona Blue and a leading activist who was part of this effort, Ali Young, from Protect the Sacred, joins us for that in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. A big win for Democrats this election was turning some red states blue. One of those was Arizona, and many are pointing to the Navajo Nation, which spans parts of Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico, for being a big part of this shift. And one young activist behind this brought some of the community by horse to polling places. This is incredible. Her name is Ali Young from Protect the Sacred. She's an activist, and she joins us right now. Thank you so much for being here here. Hello. Um, in, in my language, it's Yat E. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I mean, we. I think it's an understatement just to say how excited we are. Like I said before we started recording, we're obsessed with all the work that you did and, and put mm -hmm. uh, to make this happen. Because, you know, as Indigenous people in this country, I would assume like most Black and people of color, it would be difficult to trust U.S. politicians and this country. So what do you think changed this election? Absolutely. Well, COVID, you know, that's a big issue for Indigenous peoples because we have been disproportionately impacted by uh, coronavirus. And in my nation, the Navajo Nation, we became the number one hotspot in the country per capita. And so we're still feeling that. We're still mourning a lot of our relatives. The death toll in Navajo Nation right now is above 580. I think it's like 
585 or something like that. But wow. that is something that has stuck with us. And the fact that the current leadership delayed funding to our tribal nations and also didn't even want to include us in the initial stimulus package. You know, that's something we don't forget. Definitely. And you showed up, right? You're part of a Navajo Nation voter mobilization effort. So what was the strategy going into this election? Yeah, well, Protect the Sacred started with COVID work, COVID relief, and really coming together with the community and a ton of mutual aid efforts that were created because we had to to save our own community. And um, and that strategy was really because of, of the pandemic and we all had to stay home was a, a digital social media strategy. And we took that. And when you know election season came around um, the past couple of months, we pivoted to get out the vote and really mobilized our people. But then as we got closer, you know, I really felt like we needed to do something that was deeply connected to our culture, that something that our Native youth would be excited about because our Native youth are more eager to reconnect to our cultures more than ever right now. And uh, writing to the polls was that it's we believe in this thing called horse medicine. Um, mm-hmm. It's real. It, it brings healing. It brings strength. And uh, we wanted to ride with that kind of spirit to the polls. Uh, I just got chills I when you too. said that, by the way. I got chills, which yes. means it's tr- there's truth. There's yes. such truth behind the statement that you just made. Again, we're talking to activist Ali Young from Protect the Sacred about the amazing work she's done with her own community and the Navajo Nation. So how should the Democratic Party center and include uh, indigenous people in the political process moving forward? I mean, there was some record breaking moments, especially in representation that we saw here. What would you like to see? Well, when it comes to climate change, we definitely want to be included in that conversation. We want to be at the table. We have a lot of amazing uh, leaders in the in the environmental justice movement, mm-hmm. and we have incredible knowledge about how we honor and respect Mother Earth. And I think the more that we include Indigenous voices in that, the better off we'll be. So around that, and then also around some of the policies that affect tribal communities directly, like with our Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, so the Violence Against Women Act, which has been sitting in the Senate, um, we want those things to move to move forward. So there must be more optimism now that there's, you know, President-elect Biden, who seems to be more compassionate. Do you feel like there will be a change? I do. Yeah, I, I feel that. And I'm, I'm so hopeful Actually, um, my my friend, who I consider my friend, um, Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez, he actually met with President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris when they came down to Phoenix. And uh, he has uh, this great video that he took um, when he asked them, you know, what are you planning, looking forward to in working with the Navajo Nation? And Kamala Harris said that, you know, we need to learn from you when it comes to climate change. And you have a seat at the table. And that's what I truly believe with this, the new administration that will be, will be coming into office in January. And I'm so excited. You know, the Washington Post, as we wrap up, you know, basically said this, na- Native voters are transforming American politics. And obviously, as the work continues and Biden-Harris, they won, how are you going to hold and how should we expect the indigenous community to hold this administration accountable? To acknowledge us. To, to recognize us, uh, too often we are invisible in this country, in our own indigenous lands, our own homelands. And we are the first peoples of this country, and we need 
to be acknowledged as so. I mean, starting with Indigenous Peoples Day, make that a national holiday. Let's get rid of Columbus Day. That would be the first step in celebrating who we are and our contribution to this country. Well, you are amazing. And we thank you so much for your time today because we know this is a big day after the news of Arizona. So we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Now that was Ali Young from Protect the Sacred. For more, go to protectthesacred.care. And coming up on the show with COVID-19 on the rise, what happens when hospitals can't take patients? We discuss that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The second wave of COVID-19 that experts are warning of is here. The number of new daily coronavirus cases in the U.S. jumped from 104,000 last week to more than 145,000 yesterday, which is an all-time high. And this spike is prompting states to add new restrictions and hospitals to prepare for a potentially even darker winter. And with that, the hospitalizations are up as well as death tolls. And back with us to find out more and the impact of all of this is Dr. James Simmons. Thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Yeah. So let's talk about this because many say it's not so serious, right? Still, people don't think COVID-19 is serious because not as many people die. But what they're not seeing is the domino effect impact of this. So what happens when ICUs and hospitals are full? It's a really scary scenario. And it is the exact scenario, Shira, Ryan, et al., that we have been trying to avoid since the very beginning of this. So, you know, even when we talk about opening up the economy again and getting back to some sort of semblance of life, you're right. That looks different and in not only all 50 states, but even, you know, within micro communities within those states. The problem is, is that the virus doesn't know, oh, I can't leave L.A. County and go into Riverside County or I can't leave, you know, Douglas County, Nebraska and not go into Lancaster County like the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. And so if people are going different places, they're going to infect each other. And it's going to ultimately in some places like we're seeing right now in El Paso, Texas, overrun the healthcare system. I'll use LA County again as an example. There are however many millions of 17 million people here in the in the region. There's only 1100 ICU beds in LA County. So yes, people are living more with this disease. We're seeing the 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 numbers of individuals who are dying from this is significantly dropped from the beginning, which is great. But a lot of people who get sick from this and require hospitalization need to be in the hospital for sometimes up to 2 weeks. Well, if you have too many people in the hospital, you start getting into a scenario where you run out of hospital beds. And more importantly, you run out of the number of healthcare workers who Mm. are also available to take care of this many people. So comparing to what happened at the beginning of this whole entire thing, where we saw such a huge spike and it just overtaking so many different states. Do you think, you know, healthcare professionals were, were able to prepare better for the spikes that we're seeing now? Like, how can we compare what's happening or should we kind of look at this moment differently? That, it's an excellent question, Brian, in terms of looking at it differently now. I think the problem is, is that earlier on in the pandemic, because there was much more of a It wasn't a nationwide mandate to shut down, but most places had some sort of shelter in place order, right? Safer at home. We could manage these little pockets of uptick with other healthcare workers from other regions of the country. So I know lots of nurses, nurse practitioners, docs who flew into New York, Boston, Detroit, New Orleans, where there were really early pockets of mass outbreaks and overrunning the system. But we could handle those because they were smaller. Now what we're seeing is that there's just too much. There's just an influx everywhere. I mean, we're having places like small towns in North Dakota are completely running out of hospital beds. 
but they don't have enough healthcare workers who are themselves also not sick. You can have all the beds you want. You can make makeshift hospitals. You can take ships and put them into harbors where you have, you know, extra hospital beds. But if you don't have the staff to run those beds, you still run into the same issue. Yeah. yeah. Dr. James Simmons is with us again. So I guess and you've given some options that we've seen in terms of creating more beds, right, and spaces for patients. But what happens then, right, or for other people that need to be treated for other things? You bring up a perfect point right there. The Cleveland Clinic, in fact, which is one of the, the top five best healthcare institutions in the world, was allowing non-essential surgeries to happen that would require a hospital bed. So someone needed to come in to have, let's say, a foot surgery. That's They don't need it to live, but they need to have this surgery, and it's going to require them to stay in a hospital bed for a day or two afterward. They've now gone back to canceling all of those non-essential surgeries so that they have enough hospital beds and healthcare workers to take care of the influx of COVID. And let's not forget as well that we are squarely into flu season now. Mm -hmm. And so we certainly have not hit the peak of it by any stretch that usually comes somewhere around January, February, but we're into flu season. It always tends to be a little bit worse in colder climates. So places like Cleveland, for instance, they're having to already go to these drastic measures because people are out, people are going indoors now, COVID fatigue is real. It's multifactorial as to why we're seeing this spike in numbers. And I'm afraid it's just going to continue through the winter. Has your frustration grown as we've seen these spikes? Because obviously I would probably, if I was a healthcare professional, I would be so annoyed that I would be doing tests all the time. No one taking kind of personal responsibility. Have, are you frustrated at this point? Is it annoying? Can you, can you hear it in my voice, Ryan? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I am a little bit frustrated and, I will say this, though, for everyone listening. I, I get it. I get both sides of this. COVID fatigue is very real. Keeping our economy afloat is not only good for everyone's pocketbooks, but to keep people healthy, you have to house them. Housing and health go hand in hand, right? Uh, money in the bank to go get food, to see a medical provider, all those things go hand in hand. So we, from a health standpoint, can't let our economy collapse, let alone it even being like a, a security risk to the nation. Like there's all these reasons we can't let the economy collapse, but there are ways to keep the economy afloat and keep people safe. But we, as a, as a greater whole, as Americans right now, are just not doing it. And it really does go back to the very simple things. Mm-hmm. If we go back to the basics, we can slow the spread and, and stop having sort of these like, you know, I'm not a doomsday kind of guy, but I feel like we have these like doomsday scenarios of, you know, like morgues in the back of trucks in El Paso. Like, I feel like that's gonna happen more if we don't all go back to the basics. Okay, Dr. James Simmons, on that note, that was a positive note to leave on. Uh, You're going to be sticking around with us because we're going to talk about the science behind flying and how safe it is with the holidays coming up. But next on Let's Go There, President Trump has forgotten about a lot of things in his fight for his second term, including his TikTok ban. Where did that land exactly? More next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It seems like uh, Trump forgot about banning TikTok. Remember that? Remember that when that was top of mind? You know, TikTok, it was all the rage. Oh, yeah, I know, because you were like seriously going into depression over the fact that you wouldn't have your favorite app ever. I was getting ready to, you know, live in my closet. Yes. Basically. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But, you know, it seems like he's been pretty busy lately. So it's understandable why he would forget about this. But it also goes back to, like, why he started this fight with ByteDance, the company that owns TikTok in China. 
from the beginning yeah. because, uh, you know, he has the pandemic to deal with. And the fact that we are far from over with, in America, at least, uh, he obviously has his election that he's still trying to manhandle. As I say, you think he's actually worried about the pandemic versus his election? His election is taking top priority. Mike Pence has gone on vacation. Nobody cares about all these yeah. people dying. No one cares. <laughs> Kaylee McEnany is trying to get a gig at Fox News. Mike Pence has gone on vacation. They're like, we do not want to deal with any of this. We want to get our lives back. I don't know. How but let's talk about this. Uh, yeah. TikTok communications team, they actually posted this today. This is so strange and awkward. They said, since they haven't gotten any response or an extension from the administration about their options, they're filing a petition in a U.S. Court of Appeals asking for a review of the Trump administration's actions. So just to give you some context, uh, the government had said TikTok was a threat to the U.S. because of a potential security issue relating to the Chinese government. Well, how quickly we forgot about that. That obviously was such a huge issue that a month later, it didn't even matter. Yeah, so you probably see that he didn't care in the first place and he was just only doing this because maybe he was bored and he was waiting to try to win this election. Well, <laughs> yeah, it was obviously a political move. It was yeah. obviously a distraction tactic as well. And, you know, they had laid out this ultimatum to bite dance that company that owns TikTok in August, uh, saying that they had to sell TikTok or they're going to ban the app in the U.S., right? Yeah, well, actually, um, you know, there is an update. An hour ago, actually, Mashable, they released something said, according to the Wall Street Journal, this whole thing was shut down um, because of a lawsuit. So now TikTok isn't going anywhere, of course, but it's a, a, because of a lawsuit filed by three popular TikTok creators. So these TikTok creators sued and basically the injunction cited by the com uh, Commerce Department was the result of a lawsuit filed by three popular TikTok users. And now I guess the, the platform's going to be okay at this point. And you say that TikTok has no power. <laughs> Look at that. I Look mean, at that. These creators who are what, probably like teenagers are like, you are not taking this away from me. Well, this is my livelihood. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's what happens when you tell white kids no. They are just like, nah, not today. And especially when their money's attached to it. They're like, I got to pay for these million dollar, two thousand hundred million dollar houses we're all living in to make this content. Listen, I actually I know one of the creators, uh, this young woman, Colette, who was part of this. And it was very impressive. At the same time, I. Uh, I mean, it, it was interesting because TikTok was relying on their users. It shows the power of the user to make a difference like this because it seemed like TikTok didn't make any difference. I mean, they were still waiting on Trump to make a decision, right? So that's mm -hmm. what sometimes it takes uh, the users of these platforms to come in to make a change, which they did. So congratulations. We get to continue being distracted by TikTok America. <laughs> and uh, coming up on the show, what high-ranking GOP senators are speaking out to support Biden. That is next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, as we approach the holidays, how risky is air travel and what you need to do if you're going to take that leap? Are you trying to go home to see your, your mom or your parents or anything during this holiday? 
I don't think it's going to be hard because I would have to do two weeks quarantine in Canada. Oh, okay. So yeah, I'm trying to get my mom to come down here for Christmas, but you know, she's nervous and I totally understand. It's just, it's just one of those things, but I would love to know if it's okay. At least who knows? I don't know. Totally. You know, my cousin, and then we'll go back to the show. He, he went back to Canada and decided to go to Starbucks during the two week quarantine. The police stopped him and gave him a $1,500 ticket. Wait, how did they find him? I don't know. They like track that stuff. They're like watching you. Oh, see, that's it's weird. Crazy. That's a little weird yes. that they're watching. But I mean, he kind of deserved no shade. Sorry, yeah, cousin. They're, they're doing their <laughs> job. I mean, okay, let's get into some what's trending this hour. High-ranking GOP senators told reporters today that they think Joe Biden should be receiving security briefings following his projected win in the presidential election. The Trump administration is currently withholding the classified briefings from Biden. And the list of senators who support Biden receiving those briefings include Chuck Grassley, John Thune, this is surprising, Lindsey Graham, okay, James Langford, and John Cornyn. So I guess Graham is saying a lot against this, but at the same time he's saying, you know, let him see these briefings. Wink, wink, right? And here is Senator Roberts being interviewed by the Hill about this. Oh, he was done that before, haven't Yeah, but he's not getting them right now because the GSA hasn't oh, certified okay. the election. Right. What you- well, there you go. Well, you know, that'll come. But with uh, uh, the Vice President Biden, uh, he's been through this before. And uh, so I think he has, and he's, you know, putting together his team. We'll see, we'll see how this plays out. You just have to let it play out. Everybody's getting all that wound up. Uh, I don't think that's really necessary because sooner or later it's going to be uh, a determined. And then we uh, have to come together. Well, there you have it. And today, California became the second state to surpass 1 million COVID-19 infections since the start of the pandemic, closely following Texas. Oh and in light God. of that news, yeah, Disney CEO Bob Chapek said he is extremely disappointed with California Governor Gavin Newsom's call to keep Disneyland closed. <laughs> Are we really worried about Disneyland right now? Are you kidding me? Get over it. I feel like, like I've said, and I've said it here on the show before, and I'm sorry if it's controversial, but Disney World people and Disneyland people are weird, especially if they're adults. They're so obsessed with it. It's like, get over it. You know, I discovered this is obviously a headline, but I was searching for Gavin Newsom's press conference from the other day about the current COVID-19 numbers. And before even that, what came up, because this is what is being posted so much by Twitter, was the fact that Disneyland is still going to be closed and people are mad about it. Oh, my God, I can't. Now, moving to Chicago, as cases of COVID-19 continue to rise in the city, a stay-at-home advisory has been issued, encouraging residents to stay home and only leave for school, work, or other essential needs, according to a news release today. That includes seeking medical care, grocery shopping, picking up food. And the order, which begins Monday, extends through Thanksgiving festivities. Residents are strongly advised to not have guests in their homes outside of essential workers, even family and close friends. Okay. So that's that's the first state to really make a move about like the Thanksgiving situation. All right. I mean, hopefully other states maybe will follow. We'll see. Now, this comes from Mayor Lori Lightfoot who said Chicago has reached a critical point in the second surge of COVID-19, demanding that we undertake this multifaceted and comprehensive effort to stop the virus in its tracks. And according to Reuters, Mark Zuckerberg told an all-staff meeting that Steve Bannon has not violated enough policies to be suspended by Facebook. The ex-Trump advisor 
suggested that FBI Director Christopher Wray and Dr. Anthony Fauci should be beheaded. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Um, okay, so let's talk President Obama. Um, the former press, he is opening up about his eight years in office in an upcoming memoir called A Promised Land. And one of the most interesting antidotes is about how the presidency took a toll on Michelle and his marriage. Now, Obama says he could sense an undercurrent of tension in her, subtle but oh. constant, despite her own achievements and growing popularity and their roles in America's first family, amplifying all of the stress involved. Here's an excerpt from what he said. He says, it was as if confined as we were within the walls of the White House, all of her previous sources of frustration became more concentrated, more vivid. Whether it was my round-the-clock absorption with work or the way politics exposed our family to scrutiny and attacks. He also adds that he became wistful many nights while basically lying next to Michelle thinking about the time before he was president. He said, when everything between us felt lighter, when her smile was more constant or our love less encumbered, oh my and my heart would suddenly tighten at the thought that oh. those days might not return. Are you oh kidding me? Oh my God. <laughs> this is going to be a book that everyone needs to get and read. I hope there's an audio version because I would love to hear him yes. speak poetry in my ear. Well, that book is coming out next week. So expect that there's excerpts. I mean, literally uh, all dropping on Daily Mail and kind of out talking about Donald Trump and how racism is the reason why he got elected. It's it's wild. It, go check it out. It's going to be a really, really good book. And that's your tea report. Oh, that's some good tea. Mm-hmm. OK, coming up. How risky is air travel in the pandemic? We're getting into what science says next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. United Airlines boasts that the, quote, risk of exposure to COVID-19 is almost non-existent on our flights. And Southwest Airlines has opened up middle seats for passengers, saying the odds of catching the coronavirus on a plane are similar to the odds of being struck by lightning. But how much truth is behind this? Back with us is Dr. James Simmons to get into this because the holidays are coming up. We are, some of us are going to be flying or some of us just want to get back to our travel life. So at this point, James, or Dr. James, have we come to the conclusion that flying is safe? Safer than many activities, Shira, uh, which is really good news. But I I have to caution everybody as well. You you always have to look at where the source of your information is coming from. I know we've talked a lot about that with the elections, right? This is the airlines that are pushing this. Obviously, the airlines have lost a lot of money during Mm -hmm. COVID because people aren't traveling. So now there's been some research around what are the risks of catching COVID-19, of becoming you know, infected with it while you're flying? And the one that everyone likes to quote that then leads to the, you're more likely to get struck by lightning than you are to catch COVID on a, on a plane. That one is they took one dummy, if you will, put it in a plane and assumed that everyone else on the plane was wearing masks, that the ventilation system was working 100%, that there was spacing in between the individuals, and it was just while they were flying. And this dummy character, they put aerosol and droplets in that dummy character's mouth and breathed it out while that dummy was wearing a mask. And lo and behold, none of the other dummies on the plane got evidence of COVID-19 because they were wearing masks and the ventilation was working. So that's in a a laboratory environment, right? A very Mm -hmm. perfect environment. What we don't know is real life. So is everyone on the plane wearing masks? Is it only one person 
who has COVID-19 and is contagious at that time? What about getting on and off of the plane? What about being in the airport? Those are the places where you're much more likely to come in close contact with someone who may be contagious and may potentially spread COVID-19 to you. Or let's not forget, we still have 40% of individuals who may have this disease who are asymptomatic. So you might actually have covid not know it and be that person who is spreading it to everyone else. So I think it's very important, uh, Sharon Ryan, to differentiate between the actual flying scenario. When you're on the plane, you're up in the air, the HEPA filter's on, the, the, the air filtration system's working, everyone's wearing a mask, there's space between individuals. That scenario is very, very, very low risk. That is something I would do. Should we be more concerned about those surface germs? Because you know, the one thing that I feel like I would do if I was on the airplane is sanitize everything. Should we be more concerned about those surface germs are like, like you said, the like the flight crew members having it? Like what's the riskier moment there? The riskier moment is when you're getting your coffee before you go on the plane, when you're in the Hudson News and you want to get that trashy magazine and a Diet Coke before you get on the plane and there's 14 people in line and you're all standing in line and no one's really six feet apart anymore, right? And someone sneezes on you. Mm. That's the riskier scenario. Now, I think we can all find our inner Naomi Campbell and wipe down everything when you get on that plane. I am a 100% a fan of that because what happens is let's say someone did have a really high viral load of, of coronavirus. They coughed and sneezed all over that tray. Well, then you come up and you touch that tray and then you touch your eye. That's a mode of transmission. But if you wipe that down, if you get crazy Naomi Campbell on it and you sanitize everything, you're going to be okay. Dr. James Simmons is with us as we talk about how safe it is to fly right now. But you know, what if you need to take a drink of water on the flight, like I, I flew to Atlanta the other month and I kept my mask on the entire time, did not go to the bathroom. That's not necessarily realistic for everyone. It, it's not realistic for everyone. And there's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's, I'm glad you were able to do that. And I know that there are some people who really have to travel for emergencies, but I think we have to go back to that March, April mindset. And it's going to be really hard this holiday season. I, you know, Dr. Fauci has said this before, Dr. Richard Bessler said this before as well, just very recently on, on GMA about skipping this holiday so that you can have all the holidays going forward, oh, right? That's, that's the crazy. mindset that we need to think about. So you might miss grandma right now and you might really want to fly back home to see grandma and your family because we all miss our families terribly. I actually have parents right now, one of whom did have COVID. Thank God he's doing better, but my, I'm really worried about my parents. But I also know I'm a risk to them if I travel and then fly back to Nebraska and then go be around them. So what I'm sacrificing now in these holidays and seeing my parents is meaning that I'll have more time with them when it's safe and we can all travel and go back to some sort of, I'm using finger quotes, normal next year when there's a vaccine. Does the time length of the flight increase your chances? Like what if yes. it's a short flight? Very, very good question, Ryan. As I always say, I think you need to become a scientist. You, your, brain is, <laughs> your brain is thinking the right way. Oh, yes, thanks. time, you're very welcome, love. Time under exposure is a really big component to your likelihood for contracting COVID-19. So if you're with someone in any environment and they're contagious, if you're only with them for 10 minutes, your likelihood of catching it is pretty low. If you stay six feet apart, you wear your mask, you're in a well-ventilated place or preferably outside. If you're with them on a four-hour flight or like a five-hour, you know, you're flying to New York, well, <laughs> the likelihood that that person's going to be spreading coronavirus to everybody on that plane is certainly going to go up. So a quick flight from 
Cincinnati to Chicago or whatever, okay, your risk is much lower. Seattle to Boston, your risk is pretty high. Okay, Dr. James Simmons again at Ask the NP on Instagram. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now, coming up, Trump is replacing Pentagon officials with loyalists. Should we be worried? Alex Ward, national security writer for Vox, joins us for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It is time for our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Now, this is, uh, you know, a sad moment, but it's also honoring an incredible man. Uh, Jean Caravan Trebek is thanking fans for their support at this very hard time. She is the wife of late Jeopardy host Alex Trebek, and she took to her Instagram yesterday to share a photograph from their 1990 wedding along with a very heartfelt message. She wrote, My family and I sincerely thank you for all your compassionate messages and generosity. Your expressions have truly touched our hearts. Thank you so very much. Um, Many blessings to all, Jean Trebek. So we are sending our love to her and the family during this difficult time and to all the fans out there who are definitely still grieving this loss. Yeah, and the photo is just so pretty. Like, it's just so nice. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that she's doing well. So we're sending her lots of love and she most definitely deserves the yes, queen. Exactly. Now, there has been these incredible videos between Dave Grohl and a 10-year-old girl drummer named Nandy. We've featured them before on the show. Since August, they've been taking each other on in the most epic drum battle. I mean, this girl is so talented. She's already blowing up. She's going to be huge. And they now are going to actually get ready to jam on stage someday together. Yesterday okay. in a video. Yeah. Yesterday in a video call hosted by the New York Times, the pair met for the first time. Hello, Mr. Gross. Amazing to meet you. Oh, my gosh. It's you. It's so nice to meet you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I can't believe I'm talking to you. (laughs) I feel like I'm meeting a beetle. (laughs) So I love this. This is what I love about social media, when it brings people like this together. I agree, and she is the cutest, and honestly, I wish I had half of that talent. I've always wanted to like play the drums. I remember in church trying to do it, but I could never keep the, it's like a a coordination thing. Like You gotta be able to do so, so many things at once, and I'm just like, oh no. I can't do it. That's like me with the guitar. I would love mm. to play the guitar, just be like a play, you know, g- hang out by the fire with my guitar, singing some songs or like after dinner. You need to, you should have been born in the seventies if you wanted to be a hippie <laughs> that damn bad. Maybe that was like in a previous life. I'm just saying, maybe Peace I was some sort love. of famous Peace like love. hippie rock star or something. That would be amazing. Uh, that does it for our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. And coming up on tomorrow's show, what Biden's potential Treasury Secretary has said about a second stimulus check. That's okay. What I'm talking about. Plus, how often should you be tested for COVID-19? What the people who test you want you to know. We're going to be having some folks who have a, a company that do this joining us on the show tomorrow. And of course, if you miss any of our shows, we post everything as a podcast. So join our podcast family. Just go to the radio.com app or our podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. Again, we are live here weekdays on channel Q4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. We are sending you love and light. And honey, you better remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. All right. Bye, y'all. Let's Go There with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. Biden's potential Treasury Secretary has said about a second stimulus check. Plus, how often should you be tested for COVID-19? What the people who test you want you to know. Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q or on your own time. 
time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.